0: First 1, Acts chapter 4, and let's read the word of God together. And as they speak unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, And the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, that they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, which is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they commanded them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing was was shown. Amen. And we land our reading there at verse twenty two of the Book of Acts. Power through persecution. You see, up until now, the church, as we have learned in recent weeks, the church has experienced dramatic and incredible growth. And now the opposition starts to show itself in the form of persecution. In chapter 4, we have began to read of those who should have known better. Of course, those who were amongst the Jews and in the temple, of course, they didn't recognize Messiah, but they should have known better and they start to cause a little bit of trouble. Now, the fact that the persecution has arisen shouldn't be any surprise it didn't take too long really did it it only took until the fourth chapter or so and it came from the same Jewish leaders who sought to execute the Lord Jesus Christ and as we continue on through the book of Acts we'll see in chapter 4, 5, 7, 8 and 12 and we'll see records of those persecution but should we be surprised that this early church faced persecution? Should we be surprised that any church in general should face persecution? Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ warned in John 15, 18 through 20. He said these words, If the world hate ye, no, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Paul would follow up to his young servant Timothy, and he would say this phrase, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so you and I, as we seek to live uh, godly, Christ-centered lives, we will inevitably come into conflict with the satanic world system. Stephen's already mentioned about the enemy that we face day to day and that is so true and you and I maybe in the week that has passed maybe have experienced some form of persecution even from the enemy. Indeed I do believe that we are not far from the day and even in Northern Ireland even Little Gospel Belt, Northern Ireland, relatively speaking, where persecution maybe were the physical imprisonment of pastors and different believers. I don't think it's actually that far away. And you might think that's a bit of an extreme statement, but I do believe there is already a form of persecution around about in Northern Ireland today, especially against the evangelical believers. Of course, uh, now nobody's been rounded up and carted away just yet, But we have all read headlines, we have all seen different things, different cases that have come before the courts. We have seen different things where the police tend to now intervene whenever people are trying to maybe proclaim the word Even on the street corners and we see demonization of our views if we hold to a traditional biblical view on marriage for example or indeed uh, all the way back to Genesis that there are only two genders. Let me tell you this, these things are starting to creep under a very dangerous piece of legislation that they have enshrined as a hate crime. Now, who defines what is a hate crime? Well, it's the morally corrupt themselves. They get to set the terms by which they then seek to prosecute. It's a very dangerous thing, but we're not going to get too worried about that because we want to see that even in the midst of this persecution, great power came to the two men in particular, and great power can come to you and to me. You see, this passage, as we will see, provided a wonderful opportunity for growth. There was a tremendous opportunity not only for witness but for personal growth and we will see that today. The first thing that I want to show you here this morning and you can follow along with me is simply this. In the first seven verses I want you to see the outbreak of persecution. The outbreak of persecution. If you come back to verse 1 of chapter 4 I want to set the scene for you this morning. You see if you look at verse 3 very quickly and they laid hands on them that's Peter and John, and put them in hold even unto the next day, for it was now even time. You see, the devil always fights the church when the church is on the move. You see, when God begins to work in the church, as he had done here, the enemy started to work against. God was multiplying the church. The enemy started to murmur against the church. God started to grow the church here. The enemy started to grumble. Charles Spurgeon said that Satan never kicks a dead horse. Satan knew that the church was on the move. So he started to attack it. He started to go at it. Do you remember in chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people were saved? If you cast your eye down to verse 4 of chapter 4, you'll notice it's now 5,000. You see, this number had grown. And it's interesting there because that little word for men there is the, in the masculine sense. It's not actually accounting for the women. So it's likely that there were women saved, maybe wives of those men who had got saved. And they possibly had children and they'd also got saved. Some commentators believe that there could have been as many as 15 to 25,000 people in this early church an incredible number. Well, what had happened? Well, people started to get saved. The church was growing. Satan wasn't happy. He came like a lion and the apostles were threatened. We will read as we go on in chapter 5. We will see how Satan tried to work from the inside. He came as a a serpent. He came to influence Ananias and Sapphira. And he sought to infect the church with their lion and their hypocrisy about money. But you see, if Satan can't win... From persecution by the inside, he'd try it on the inside. He then would come in chapter 6 as the accuser. Remember, some of the widows, they started to mumble and grumble that they were being neglected. There was problems there. And of course, then we read about the division between the elders and the deacons and how that sets the pattern for the local New Testament church for the work to advance in God's way and in God's design. You see, I wondered this morning, even before we continue, do you realise there was a pattern? Satan had switched to get to try and get the saints of God to do his dirty work. I trust there's no saint of God here this morning who is stupid enough to be used by the devil to further his divisive agenda. Remember, of course, as we thought about even on Wednesday night past, He thought a little bit about demons, believe it or not. But remember in Ephesians 6 and 12, there's that verse that we all know so well, but we maybe don't know the full ramifications of it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. You see, there's something that we have to realize today. We're not really fighting against people. Yes, Satan might use people. But we're really wrestling against those principalities and against those powers. But look firstly here, not only at these things. Look at this, the outbreak of persecution. But I want you to see the reason for the persecution. Look at verse 1. And they, and as they speak unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That little phrase, came upon them. I mean, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where persecution or people just suddenly came upon you. You were set upon in some sort of way. Well, that's what happened here to the disciples. Then look at verse 2. What was the main reason for why they were persecuted? Look at verse 2. They were what? Being grieved. That word grieved can be translated agitated or worried. They were worried. They were agitated that they were teaching the people, that they taught the people. They taught the people about Christ and they were preaching about Christ. That's what agitated these boys. That's what annoyed them. They were grieved. They were worried about the message being preached. And what was the message? Well, there it is at the end of verse 2. Through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Let me tell you, whenever you preach the truth, whenever you seek to preach the word, you're going to get opposition. Because the enemy doesn't like this message going forth. He doesn't like the fact that people could find new life in Christ. That was the reason for the persecution. They didn't like what was being taught. Not only the reason for the persecution, but look at something else. I want you to see the religious source of the persecution in these verses. Look at verse 1. The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. Then if you drop your eye down to verse 5, you'll see the rulers and the elders and the scribes. Verse 6, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander and as many as were the kindred of the high priest. You see, the priests would have been those ordinary priests, if you like, who were engaged in conducting the evening sacrifice. The captain of the temple, he would have been the the chief of the temple force, mostly composed of the Levites. The Sadducees were the dominant uh, political and religious force at the time. You know, little good could be said about this merry bunch of men. The Pharisees opposed the Lord, of course, for religious reasons. But the Sadducees, well, they opposed the apostles mainly because of political aspirations. The Sadducees were not just as involved in the early persecutions, but they were mostly aristocratic. They were wealthy landowners and they had very important political position and they had lots of wealth. And they were very opposed to any opposition to Rome, believe it or not. The chief priests were composed of the Sadducees. And that is why there was such opposition. That's why they were grieved. That's why they were so worried about this message going forth. Because they were worried about losing their position. They were worried about losing their political power. And whenever that happens, people get nervous and they get agitated. And they begin to fight back. Hence the move from the Sadducees against the apostles. But then not only the reason for the persecution the religious source of the persecution, but I want you to see uh, the reality of the persecution. Look at what happened. What actually happened? What was the outcome? Did they just come upon them and heckle from the sidelines and then everybody got on with it or what happened? Well, look at verse three with me. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold onto the next day for it was now even time. They were taken into custody. Peter and John were taken into custody. Anybody here ever want to admit to being arrested? No, I didn't think so. Anybody looking at the floor in particular, I see. Well, I've never been arrested. Come close to Only joke, I Never, never, never run into anything bad with the law as far as I know. Not yet, but you know, I'm relatively young. We'll see how it goes. But they were taken into custody. They were arrested. But look at verse 4. Something happened. Yes, they were taken into custody. This was the reality of this persecution, but what happened? Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. Well, it was a small price to pay, wasn't it, for being lifted. The love of the Lord had went forward and many had got saved. There was at least 5,000 men. And as we've already mentioned, that number could be three or four times that when you account for the wives and the children. Look at verses 5 and 6. There's a, little, there's a reason why this little phrase comes in here in verse 3 about the, it was now eventide. Look at verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes. You see, Jewish law did not allow or to permit trials at night. Now you'll know that that was ignored whenever it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now that it was day, Peter and John were hauled before the Jewish Sanhedrin. What was the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was, if you like, the ruling body of the nation. It was the ultimate authority of the Romans, and it was also the Supreme Court. And at this time, as we've mentioned, it was dominated by the Sadducees. I wonder, can you get this picture in your mind? The Sanhedrin would have been comprised of 71 men. There were 22 lawyers, 22 elders, and 26 priests, then with the high priest presiding. So quite a bunch to go in front of, quite a bunch to stand before. And from what I understand from study, they would have been gathered in a semi-circular fashion and the accused was made to stand in the centre of that semi-circle. What an intimidating place that would have been. Do you get the picture Peter and John and this healed beggar? I mean, I have to feel sorry for this man, this healed beggar. You know, he's just got the opportunity of a lifetime. He's just been healed. He's found new life. And the next thing he knows, without any fault of his own, he's been hauled before the Sanhedrin with these other two boys to give an account. I mean, what a roller coaster ride this poor fella has been on. They were hauled before the most influential, the most wealthy court in the land. And then that great question is asked in verse 7 of our chapter. By what power, or by what name have you done this? Now that maybe seems like an innocent enough question, but... It was a very dangerous and deadly trap because if the apostles' accusers could get them to attribute this power to anything other than Jehovah, they could sentence them to death. You know, this wasn't just Peter and John having to do a couple of weeks' time and then they would have got out after a few weeks with a bit of a slap on the wrist or they maybe would have faced a bit of a hiding or a beating and then they would have got away with it. They faced possible death because of this situation. I'm sure many of us would have been absolutely frozen in that situation. Well, not only the outbreak of the persecution, not only the reason for that persecution, the religious source of the persecution, the reality of that persecution, but there's something else I want you to see here. The opportunity for proclamation. The opportunity for proclamation. Look at verses 8 through 14 with me this morning very quickly. Think about it. You're hauled before the big chiefs. You're facing death, you're facing the death penalty or maybe at best imprisonment for a long time and let me tell you it would have been no MacGabrie prison with a TV and everything else that you get sounds quite attractive sometimes maybe up there in MacGabrie but this would have been hard prison time that they would have been facing. Now, I'm sure they would have thought this oppression was a terrible thing. And the last thing maybe on their minds would have been the fact of, hey, this is an opportunity for us to witness. But I want you to notice a couple of things that I noticed about Peter and John. I want you to notice, first of all, the practice of Peter and John. Look at this. In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of Israel, or ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. But cast your eye back to verse 3, the arrest verse. I want you to notice their practice. What did they do when they were arrested? And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now even time. You see, Peter and John, there's a wonderful example here. They didn't offer any resistance during their arrest, nor did they resist whenever they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And indeed, Peter, he begins with a very courteous acknowledgement of the Sanhedrin and then he proceeds to go down through his defense with clarity and conviction. How did the apostles behave in this very pressurized and difficult situation? They simply quietly submitted. Why would the apostles behave like this? Well, I believe ultimately it was because they knew God controlled their circumstances, they knew God was in control. And yes, this was a terrible fix that they got themselves into, so to speak. This was a terrible situation that seemed to have befelled them, but they knew that God was in control. They acted with courteousness and they acted with a common decency. Isn't it interesting today, I think, that courteousness needs to be put back into Christianity? I wonder how you respond whenever you face authority. I mean, whenever you go to work, maybe tomorrow, uh, are you defiant to the boss? I hope not. Are you defiant to the boss? Do you push back when they ask you to do something? I wonder in the home, are you defiant to your parents? Are you defiant in the home? Husbands, wives, that relationship, is there a defiance there? For if there's defiance, there'll not be much happiness. Then in the church, I wonder, are you defiant of the elders or the pastor? They ask you to do something, are you dutiful or are you defiant? You see, Peter and John, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. There's a wonderful little secret here to ministry. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Don't we read that so often in the book of Acts? They were filled with the Holy Ghost. You see, to be filled, as you will know, we've looked at this many times, it's simply to be under the perfect and the complete control of the Holy Spirit of God. There was no back chat. There was no unnecessary questions. There was no smart remarks. They just had complete trust in God that he was going to undertake because they were filled. They were under control of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the practice of Peter and John. But look at what they did. They preached the person of Christ. Look at verse 8 through 12 very quickly this morning. Verse 8. They were filled. You see, they had a thing called boldness. This was the... Essential element for Peter's powerful defense. See, Peter didn't go on his own uh, steam, as it were. He didn't go up and he didn't have a well rehearsed argument or anything like that. He hadn't spent, maybe he did spend all night uh, trying to figure out what to say, but I would believe he was filled with the Holy Ghost and that gave him utterance as to what he should say. He faced persecution with a triumphant note because he was filled with the Holy Ghost. That word filled, as you will know, simply means under total control. Peter was yielded, he was given over completely to the Holy Spirit's control. Let me ask you this morning, have you been given over completely to the Holy Spirit's control? Yes, we're baptised with the Spirit at conversion, but my, how we need to be continually filled in order that we could be used by God and for God. Of course, you know, the filling of the Holy Spirit occurs whenever a believer walks in obedience to the word of God. You might wonder, how do I get this filling? Where do I get this filling? What's the secret formula? There's no real secret formula. It's just simple obedience to the word of God and to what the word of God tells us to do. To be filled with the Spirit is living one moment at a time under his complete and perfect control through obedience to his precious word. Do you want an effective test Testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be fruitful in your ministry? And by the way, when I say ministry, a lot of people switch off. They say, Well, I don't have a ministry. That's for the pastor, that's for the, the people in charge of the Good News Club or the, the Women's Fellowship. Or Let me tell you, each and every believer has a ministry. You all have a ministry. You might not have discovered it yet, but you all have a ministry, each and every one of us. The only answer, if you want to be effective for God, you want to be fruitful for God, you have to be filled with the Spirit. Not only boldness, but there was bravery. Look at verse ten. There was bravery. Look at verse ten. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and here's the brave bit, whom ye crucified. Now imagine you're sitting there in the Sanhedrin. You've been responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, so to speak. And Peter, he's been very polite there in the opening verses. Ye men, Verse 8, ye rulers of the people, elders of Israel. And they would have got all puffed up. Thought, oh, this boy is going to come and grovel. He's going to sort it all out. And then, boom, verse 10. Whom ye crucify. Peter didn't take too long to stick in the sword of the truth and of the spirit, did he? He was brave. But then look at verse 11. Peter showed he had biblical knowledge. Psalm 118, 22 gets a quote here. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Peter wasn't uh, slow to quote scripture. It was that stone that was uh, Isaiah spoke of in chapter 8, verse 14. It was the stone that Daniel had visualized, the stone which was set at naught. I wonder, like Peter, are you able to shoot down the enemy with the word of God? You know, I don't know if Stephen knows what I'm going to preach on. Maybe he looks through the next chapter and he figures it out, but... You know something, it's very important to defeat the enemy. We need to know the word of God. You need to know the word of God. Our minds get saturated with so many things, so many legitimate things in our lives and in our families. There's things in, in our workplaces, and those are legitimate things. Of course, we're concerned with the things of life, but my friends, there's so many things... And we need to saturate our minds in the word of God in these days, that we would have that biblical knowledge, that we would be able to overcome the attacks of the enemy. But then look very quickly at verse 12. There wasn't only boldness or bravery, there was biblical knowledge and there was also belief. What was Peter saying in verse 12? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. What was Peter saying? Not only was Christ the source of this physical healing of this man, but he's also the source of the spiritual healing. You see, it's Christ or nothing. It's Christ or judgment. It's Christ or it's hell. Do You see, Peter was very careful to always bring the message about Christ. I wonder whenever you're sharing Christ, I wonder whenever I'm sharing Christ, is our message always Christ-centered? You see, in verse 10... Peter says Christ is alive. Verse 11, he said, Peter, or Christ, is exalted. In verse 12, he tells us that Christ is omnipotent, for he can not only heal physically, praise God, but more incredibly, he can heal spiritually. For the gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Whenever we place our witness alongside Peter's, how do we fare? Peter moved with the movement. He had a religious audience in front of him. He wasn't going to waste the opportunity to hammer home the truth. You see, sometimes, and I'm not sure if I was in that situation like Peter and like John, sometimes we are frightened into silence or we're frightened into compromise. And we try to sort of dance around the subject or we dance around the issue. Peter, because he was filled with the Holy Ghost, he displayed great courage And he went on the offensive. You see, submission is not cowardice. I think we can learn a lot from Peter. We can learn a lot for how he seized an opportunity to witness for Christ. Then verses 13 and 14. Not only the practice of Peter and John. Not only the person of Christ. But then I want you to see the perception. Look at verses 13 and 14. I love these two verses. What was the outcome of this? What did the Sanhedrin perceive about these two men? Now... When they saw what? The boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I think that's a beautiful verse in and of itself. You see, the Sanhedrin were amazed that these unlearned, and what that means is. They wouldn't have been trained in those rabbinical schools like the Sanhedrin. They would have had education and degrees and letters after their name coming out of their ears. I think it was Dr. Paisley used to say, praise God, some of us have no accreditation, therefore we can never lose it. And I would certainly fall into that camp but it's a great place to be. But these boys were unlearned. They were untrained they were ignorant that's what that expression means wasn't that they were awkward or arrogant in front of the men they were they were untrained they weren't professional theologians like these boys and yet they had boldness they had power they had some form of what we would maybe term success in terms of people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they were amazed at these two boys that they were able to argue so effectively from the scriptures I mean, from their perspective, how, these boys haven't studied for how many years? These boys haven't gone through a particular school or a college-type situation. Not that there's anything wrong with a Bible college, but what I'm saying is this. They looked on at these two boys and they thought, how on earth is this possible? Because they were filled with the Holy Ghost. They had no formal training. They just had a formal filling of the Holy Spirit of God. The resurrection power of Christ was working in them and through them to preach the Word. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel a little bit like uh, the description given there in verses 13 and 14. And maybe you feel that you are an unlearned and you're an ignorant man or you're an ignorant woman. Well, let me tell you this. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, it doesn't matter how much education you have or you don't have. You're able to be bold. You're able to speak a word for the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was the outcome? The ungodly were amazed. They marvel that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful little phrase? Now, no doubt the Sanhedrin at this point they would have loved to have forgot about the interrogation of the Lord on the eve of his crucifixion, but they couldn't. And as these two apostles spoke with them, they could not help but be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? Remember, these are the boys that had sentenced the Lord Jesus, if you like, today. Look at what it says at the end of verse 13. They took knowledge of them. They acknowledged the fact that before them, these two boys, they had been with Jesus. not incredible? They had been with the man that they had sentenced to murder. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ was filling. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Well, they were being saturated. Their emotions were saturated. Their will was being compelled. Their bodies were being energized so that the Sanhedrin was not really seeing Peter or John, but they were seeing Christ. They were seeing Christ. One Macla- uh, A. McLaren, the commentator, said, A soul habitually in contact with Jesus Christ will imbibe sweetness from him. Isn't that lovely? A soul habitually in contact with Jesus Christ will imbibe sweetness from him. I wonder in terms of our characters, how like Christ are we? Do you talk as he talked? Do you walk as he walked? What does the outside world see of Christ in you? Now tell me this. Tomorrow, or some point during the week, maybe when you're in the office, you're on the farm, you're in the classroom, you're in the factory floor, you're down the town, you're at the football, you're on the golf course, whatever it is, whatever it is that you do with your time, whenever people meet you and talk with you, unsaved or saved, and they walk away, do they leave your company saying, That person has been with Jesus. That person has been with Christ. Is your relationship such a reality with Christ that it just overflows in your life and people can't help but notice that they've been with Christ? Or, do they walk away from you and do they utter those horrible words that we hear so often, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Or, If they're a saved person, do those people walk away saying some Christians are so negative they could drain batteries? I wonder if you ever met them. Negative, negative, negative. There's always something wrong with something. They'll find fault. What a drag that would be. But here in verse 13 and 14, what was the outcome? They took knowledge of the end that they had been with Jesus. And then look at verse 14. There's another little phrase, the last phrase. They could say nothing against it. What a testimony to have in front of the Sanhedrin. Then, lastly, this morning, I want you to see something else the outcome of the prosecution. You see, Peter and John were effectively being prosecuted, yes, persecuted, but they were being prosecuted because, as we will see here in these verses, and we'll move quickly through them, but they had been prosecuted because the Sanhedrin. They conferred, they they talked among themselves and they said, right, what are we going to do here? We need to do something, we need to take action. We'll tell them just to keep quiet, don't let it spread any further. We'll try and keep a lid on it here uh, in Jerusalem, so to speak. We don't want this to go any further. What was the outcome of the prosecution? Look at this, they attempted to silence them. Look at verses 15 through 18, the attempt. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them. Is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them. That they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all. Or teach in the name of Christ. They dismissed the apostles. They told them. And tried to intimidate them. Threaten them into silence. Look. Don't say a thing. Keep your mouth shut. Don't be talking about the name of Christ any further. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop in that place even at that day. What did the apostles do? Yes, 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 Your Honour, I'll not do it again. Did they slip out with the tail between the legs? Did uh, Did they take a retreat? Did they walk out holding their heads down low and saying, I'm not going to have anything more to do with this. Do you see the trouble we got into? No, look at the answer in verse 19 through 22. Look at this. Look at verse 19. What did Peter make his decision on the basis of? Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What was Peter's answer? He didn't make the decision based on Is it safe to go down this route? Is it safe to push back against the Sanhedrin? Is it popular to push back against the Sanhedrin? He made his decision, which we all should do as believers. Is it biblically correct what to do? Is it right? Do you know something? This is the first instance in the New Testament of civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. We see a lot of civil disobedience today for a cause which doesn't even exist. It's called Extinction Rebellion and they glue themselves to the roads and they pour concrete on their arms and put themselves in the road and they pour paint over all sorts of things. It would make you mad, wouldn't it? There's a few honest people here. It makes me mad. Anyway, it just really frustrates me that they invest so much energy into a problem which doesn't exist and a problem which won't exist in the future because if they just read their Bible, they'd save themselves so much money and time and effort. Anyway, rant over. We're back to the sermon. Now, look at this. Our believers ought to, or ought believers to, obey the government. Yes. What did the Lord Jesus Christ teach us? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But you know something? Many believers stop the verse there. The verse goes on. Matthew twenty-two, twenty-one. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when clearly government encroaches onto the things that are God's. What are we to do? We're to obey God at all costs. Remember Paul reminded us in Romans 13, 1, the powers that are the powers that be are ordained of God. Peter, of course, himself taught obedience to it, but the reaction here of Peter and John marks the limit of their obedience. They would have obeyed the Sanhedrin, I believe, if they could have done so without disobeying God. But when God's commands conflict with government, there is but one thing we must do, disobey the government. Is this not what the Jewish midwives did in Exodus 1, 17? Daniel, did he not do this also? Daniel one six, And the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3.17, they were obedient to God no matter the cost. And that is a crucial thing that we must do. We ought to obey God rather than man. Not only the attempt, not only the answer, but I want you to see their attitude in verses 20 through 21. I want you to see their attitude in verses 20 through 21. This is the secret of holy boldness. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorify God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. You see... All hell breaking loose at the Sanhedrin could not keep Peter and John from speaking forth the message of Christ. They couldn't help but do it. They couldn't help but speak about what they had seen and what they had heard. And the apostles, well, they pushed back and they were daring and they were almost aggressive with their integrity. There was no compromise. I wonder today, as we close this morning, I wonder, are you in a situation, are you facing opposition, be it in your your home, for taking a stand for truth? Are you facing opposition maybe in the workplace for taking a stand for truth? Maybe you're at school and you're maybe the only Christian in your class or you're one of the few in class and you're on the end of a bit of persecution. People don't like the fact that you stand up for Christ or you proclaim the Word of God. Maybe you're one of only a few people who are saved, maybe in your friendship circles. And whenever you take a stand, whenever you choose not to do things on the Lord's Day or you choose to do things on the Lord's Day that they wouldn't do, do you face an element of persecution? Can I tell you what to do? Rejoice in it. A few blank faces in front of me now. Philip, you don't really understand the level of persecution, so to speak, that I'm under at home. It makes my life miserable. It makes my life terrible. It's awful. It just seems to be one battle after another. And I'm trying to stand on the word of God. How can I rejoice in it? Well, let me tell you. Look at verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you, Peter might not have been filled with the Holy Ghost if he hadn't have been hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, if he hadn't have faced persecution. How often is it in the times of persecution, the times of trial, the times of stress? Are those not the moments? Are those not the times where we find and we discover what it really means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? You'd be glad in it if you're under persecution. And I know at the time it's maybe not a pleasant thing because if you're filled boy that gives you a marvelous opportunity to grow and to see God work in spite of the worldly opposition. You know something in verse 21 there's a lovely little phrase at the end for all men glorify God for that which was done. You know in those early verses of Acts chapter 4 when they were uh, set upon when they were taken into custody and they were hauled before the, the Sanhedrin I'm sure the last thing maybe on their minds would be the fact that all men glorify God for that which was done. Maybe you're in a similar situation and you're struggling to see how on earth God could be glorified in the situation in which I find myself. Let me tell you here today on the authority of God's word. If you're in a place of persecution, the Lord will be right beside you. The Lord will help you. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You'll be enabled to take that stand, to speak forth that truth in his name. May God write his precious word upon our hearts this morning. We're going to stand to sing and we're going to stand to sing. Stand up, stand up for Jesus.